Hi everyone. I hope that you're doing well today and that you're safe and that you and your families are healthy. The view is very different for me than a typical Sunday. And uh, as you can see behind me, the, the chairs are empty. Can't think of the number of times I've prayed and we've prayed that God would fill these chairs. And yet in his providence, it seems that for a time at least, he has emptied them. We find ourselves in a season of national crisis and all people are called to pull together at this time to serve one another, to love one another. And if uh, in the mysteries of uh, God's will and government guidance, loving one another means staying farther apart, then that's the way it's going to have to be for a time. I hope that we will not be broken by this experience. Uh, I know that such times can make or break a church. They certainly do test a church, but I hope that at the end of this test, we as a congregation will have been proven. Without further delay, I'd like us to get into God's Word this morning. So locate in your Bibles the New Testament letter of Paul and the 8th chapter. Romans chapter 8, and we're going to read in just a moment from Romans 8 verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters, 
normally we would be gathered together. We would have sung together, given together, greeted one another, opened your word and read together, and learned from your word together, but today we find ourselves in different places. Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would guide us through the distressing darkness of the present moment. We pray that you would cultivate within each of us a resilience, a strength, a power that is not of our own spirits, but of your Holy Spirit, and with it love and self-control. Help us to use this season to even while we are distanced from one another to nonetheless grow close. And Father, we pray that as we open your word in this different format today that you would be pleased to teach us, to instruct us, to grow us by your grace and for your glory. Help me as I speak to speak the words of eternal life. And I pray, Father, that you would help those who are watching, those who are listening, to be encouraged and strengthened for all that lies ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. What then shall we say to these things? That's where the apostle begins this section of the text that we have read. But that's not where he began this letter, nor is it where he ends this letter. We've very much entered the letter of Romans in the middle of his thoughts. This is at the conclusion of chapter 8 in a letter of 16 chapters. So we're diving into it somewhat uh, in process. What are the things that he, he asks? Uh, what shall we say about these things? What shall we say to these things? To learn the answer to that, we have to look at the wider context. Uh, I suppose it could be any number of things in theory if you just leave it at that. So we have to go further back. The immediate context shows us that the things to which he is referring are the sufferings of this present time. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, of course, he progresses in that one verse to glory, and thus his message is definitively one of hope. And yet, there is suffering. There are sufferings in this present time. And it's uh, in light of everything that we know about suffering and everything we know about salvation and our Savior that he poses the question there in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? The question can be clarified then. What shall we say 
to the sufferings of this present time. And because God's word is living and active, we can ask this question every bit as much now, today, in 2020, facing the coronavirus COVID-19 crisis, as the church at Rome could ask the question when Paul wrote to them. What shall we say to suffering? What shall we say specifically to the sufferings of our day, our time, our place? And I believe the answer to that is no different than in the time of the Apostle Paul and the church at Rome. But I want us to gain a bit of clarity about what the sufferings of this present time are to which we are speaking. While we can draw any number of implications and applications for our present time, there are textual answers that we must respect. And so uh, we, we go to verse 20, still in chapter 8, verse 20. He talks about creation. And if we look at creation, we see the sufferings of creation and we see that creation is groaning. That is the language that he uses, a creation that is groaning. It is unwillingly subjected to futility and it is in bondage to decay. That is to say uh, that it is fleeting is to say that it is um, uh, uh, to say it is futile is to say it is fleeting. It's like a, a vapor. It's fleeting. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It blossoms and flourishes, but then it withers and perishes. In verse 22, the apostle notes how creation is groaning in pain. For we know that the whole creation, he says, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Using that graphic imagery of childbirth and labor pains, uh, he, he, he sums up the despair of our world and creation. It's seeking to give birth, but there's no baby that's coming. Not yet, at least. And we can say the same 2,000 years or so later. Creation is still in labor pains, but the baby hasn't come yet. That's what it's like. That's what we see all around us. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to a world that is falling apart? What shall we say to a world that is assaulted by perpetual decay, disease, and death. Creation was, was created good, not in our eyes, but in God's eyes. And therefore, it was of the highest order of goodness. It was well and truly good. And yet, we look around and we see it rotting and we see it broken and we see it corrupted by sin our sin what shall we say to these things what shall we say to the unresolved pandemic of youth crime 
violent youth crime that has left many young men and women of our city and especially our area bleeding out in the streets. What shall we say to the unresolved pandemic of unemployment or oppressive employment, dishonest businessmen, exploitative landlords, and the many who have been victimized in this city? What shall we say to the unresolved pandemics of mental health breakdown and illness, of loneliness, of substance misuse and substance abuse? What shall we say to the unresolved pandemic of spiritually and literally broken families? These are things that have long impacted our life in this area and indeed our life as a church. And these are things that we have sought to speak about and have sought to address. And yet creation still groans. And of course, what shall we say to this new pandemic? An unpredictable, uncertain, unseen, dangerous and deadly virus that threatens the most vulnerable and the elderly in our communities. What shall we say to those who, if it's not one thing, it's another about which they are constantly worried sick, and this has only made that worse? What shall we say to people who are seized with self-preserving panic on one hand and self-destructive pride on the other? What shall we say to couples who have had to cancel or drastically alter their wedding plans? What shall we say to families who may be able to bury their dead well enough, but cannot do so surrounded by the support of extended family and friends who love the deceased and wish to weep with those who weep? What shall we say, brothers and sisters, to those who are gasping for last breaths that never come in overcrowded hospital wards all across our nation and without the loving embrace and hand of their family? At most, some digital device by which they can see their family and their family can see them as they slip away into the next life. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say not only to the sufferings of creation, but what shall we say to the sufferings of people who are called, in fact, in Scripture, a new creation, in Christ, what shall we say to the sufferings of Christians? And indeed, that is where the text goes next. It's interesting. Uh, some people say things that seem to indicate that Christians cannot suffer, that Christians won't suffer, that Christians uh, uh, don't suffer. 
that if you're united to Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit, you won't even get coronavirus. It's absolute nonsense. Christ suffered. Are the servants greater than the master? If Christ suffered and, and we don't suffer, what, what does that mean? We seem to have a weak theology of the cross. We, we see Christ hanging on the cross and we assume from that somehow that because Christ has suffered on the cross, therefore that, that cancels all future suffering for us. And of course, it, as we shall note, does resolve the problem of sin and its eternal consequence. The Christ who carried a cross and died on a cross calls us to take up our crosses and to suffer in his name, indeed for his name. Christ suffered and we will not wear the crowns of Christ if we do not first carry the crosses of Christ. Before we get to glory, there has to be some groaning. And we read that in the text. It is not only creation that has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. He says, verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. We, filled with the Holy Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Christians are groaning inwardly while suffering outwardly. Of course, as humans, our sufferings are very much like those sufferings of the rest of creation, but we could add others. Some of you, for example, uh, in our church, you have had to flee your home. You have had to run away from your very nation because of your Christian faith. Some of you weren't running because of your Christian faith. You weren't even Christians at the time. But upon arriving in this country, you heard the gospel, you repented of sin, and you believed in Jesus Christ. You became followers of Jesus. And you've discovered that even as you've become followers of Jesus, new difficulties have come. Some of you have problems in your family, problems at your workplaces, problems in your schools because you are Christians. And so we consider all of the potential sufferings of Christians, the things that you have experienced personally, physically, mentally, emotionally. But Paul isn't even thinking about those things at least in the immediate sense of the text. Rather, he's talking about spiritual afflictions, spiritual sufferings, whereby even as creation groans and longs for deliverance, and we with creation groan and long for deliverance from all of this death, we groan inwardly, for the embrace of our adoptive 
Father. We groan because we are afflicted by spiritual weakness to the point even, he says, that we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Verse 26, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. And I would say that that's still even 2,000 years after this letter was written, the number one pastoral issue that comes to me, people who are having difficulty praying. It's not simply that they are struggling in prayer. Struggling in prayer is a good thing. You're wrestling in prayer, but, but no, you're not wrestling in prayer. You're wrestling to pray. You're not struggling in prayer. You're struggling to pray. In fact, it might be asked, are you even wrestling to pray? Are you even struggling to pray? You just find that prayer doesn't have a particularly important place in your life. And that's very unhealthy. Indeed, it's very dangerous. And yet there is something that is timeless about this, this problem. Even the disciples of Jesus Christ had it. It is the classic age-old question of disciples. Lord, teach us to pray. It's astonishing, though, that people who can call God their heavenly father, who have the Holy Spirit, nonetheless struggle to talk to God. We're told that we have free access by the grace of God in Christ to his throne of grace to access the father in our time of need. And we don't do that now in our present crisis. Now, in this moment, perhaps you find yourself flooded with all sorts of thoughts and fears and anxieties and worries. And how many of you have taken it to God in prayer? How many of you have called upon his name? Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to my family. Protect us, guard us, heal us. How many of you, like Moses and Aaron, when their people were struck by plague, fell on their faces and pled with God for mercy to turn back the disease? How many of us have gone before the Lord and prayed to the one who is not only our king, but indeed our loving heavenly father, And, of course, the apostle gives hope. He does say that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And yet we have that because of our weakness, our frailty. So what shall we say? What shall we say to the sufferings of creation? What shall we say to the sufferings of the new creation? Those who are remade in the image and likeness of Christ, Christians, how do you answer suffering? Back to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Stop right there for a moment. The first thing that you do to answer suffering, 
to say to suffering, you answer with God's word. Answer with God's word. You are not above Jesus. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Jesus himself responded, it is written. So when you have doubting thoughts, pained thoughts, thoughts that are so fi filled with suffering that you cannot feel your savior and you think you can't take it anymore, when you begin to doubt God's faithfulness, when you question the power of the risen Christ in your life, when you are forgetting that he who is in you is greater, answer with God's word. When Satan comes tempting you with bread, point him to the bread of life who said, it is written. When Satan comes tempting you with the wealth of nations and the kingdoms of this earth, point him to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who alone gives and takes away. When Satan comes to you and, and, and tempts you to not only prove yourself, but to prove Christ, to prove him who is the King of Kings to whom you have bowed, to test God's sovereignty, point him to the self-authenticating sovereign protector and provider who said, you shall not test the Lord your God. Point him to the word. Point those thoughts, those feelings, those attitudes, those actions to the word of God. Say to suffering, it is written, God has spoken, thus says the Lord. But what does the Lord say? What is it that God has said? It's a nice sentiment, but where is it in this text? Well, Paul is someone who is immersed in Scripture. And as someone who is immersed in Scripture, the following verses are bathed either intentionally or unintentionally with allusions to biblical texts. So, for example, when the apostle says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, the apostle Paul is calling to mind the story of Abraham in Genesis 22. Abraham's faith was tested, and he was once told to take his son, his only son that he had with Sarah, indeed the one through whom his descendants would be innumerable as the stars of heaven and the grains of sand on the seashore. And he was supposed to sacrifice him. Abraham, though, was confident that God would provide a substitute. Or if it came to it, the letter to the Hebrews says, God could even raise him from the dead. So Abraham has his son all strapped down and he's raising the knife. And I've always wondered what's going on in Isaac's mind at this point. I mean, his dad strapped him down to the altar. By that point, it should have become clear that he is the one who's going to be sacrificed. Abraham's raising the knife and all the while he's trusting God. God will provide. And if God doesn't provide, he will raise my son from the dead, the angel of the Lord stopped him 
and said, I know that you fear God, seeing as you have not withheld your son, your only son. Because later he says um, uh, in the same language, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son from me, I will surely bless you. And he reiterates the covenantal promise. In you will all the nations be blessed. In your offspring, specifically, in your offspring shall all the nations be blessed. That offspring, the Apostle Paul identifies elsewhere as none other than Jesus Christ. In Christ, God did not withhold his son, his only son, his unique son, his only begotten son, but gave him up as a sacrifice for us all if we believe in him. In Christ, with Christ, we are, he says, graciously given all things. We have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And that's not only in heavenly places. God is also providing for our material welfare. I know sometimes in our rejection of the prosperity gospel, which is an atrocity and an injustice and a travesty of the biblical gospel, we have sometimes run in the other direction and forgotten that it is the Lord indeed who heals our wounds. It is the Lord who feeds us and clothes us. It is the Lord who looks out upon us and sees us as sheep without a shepherd and ministers to us as we have need. God is our provider. We have all spiritual Blessings, and we have many material blessings. And I know that we feel somewhat inconvenienced by the past week or so. And we may feel even more inconvenienced by uh, the, the end of all of this. But the supply channels are still running. There's still food on the shelves. There's still um, food in our refrigerators and freezers and cupboards and we have access to such, such wealth of resource. We have a nation that this very week has unrolled the, the most radical stimulus plan in history, as far as our nation is concerned, to keep our nation on its feet and to keep us going and not only going, but to help us recover in the days ahead. Truly astonishing times in which we live. We are richly blessed, but if we are richly blessed, be sure that it is because of God. There, there may be an allusion here in this section to uh, the sayings of Christ taught in the earliest days of the church, even if they had not yet been uh, at the time of the letter to the Romans uh, written down in the form that we have them, Christ said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. 
What things? What things shall be added? Well, the context of Jesus' words were what to eat, what to drink, what clothes you will wear, where you will live, what the future holds. All things that have, I'm sure, been very much on your minds over the past week. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. As we continue to, to, to read verses 33 through 34, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Paul asks, who is to condemn? And in this, he's recalling the words of the prophet Isaiah, who said in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 8 through 9, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. There, Isaiah effectively says, let's take it outside. You, you have condemnation against me? You, you would contend with me? Well, let's, let's, let's stand up together and have it out then. Come on. And the Apostle Paul reiterates that. Who is to condemn? Come at me. Because it doesn't matter. If God is for me, who can be against me? Because I have Jesus Christ. And more importantly, Jesus Christ has me. And so anyone who comes against me, anything, any power that comes against me will be absolutely worn out like a garment by the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. I have salvation in him. You can say in your suffering, you can say to the originators of your suffering, come at me because I have something greater. I have a blessing that's better. I have a savior who is stronger, who will contend with me. Let's stand and fight it out and see who wins because the Lord God is my helper. Who's yours? The Lord God's my helper and he's going to throw you down. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, he says, is the one who died. Jesus has been condemned in our place. Jesus has paid the price that we should have paid. Jesus has died the death that we deserve to die. Having died in our place, he's not just left there in the grave to rot with the rest of creation. He's not only gone down into the grave, but the grave couldn't hold him. He is risen. And not risen like poor Lazarus. Lazarus was this man that Jesus rose from the dead. And no sooner is he raised from the dead than people are plotting to kill Lazarus because his resurrection from the dead means that Jesus really is who he says he is. 
and they they didn't like Jesus. They were enemies of Jesus. So the solution is to let's kill Lazarus. Uh, poor poor guy. Uh, but Jesus, he he is raised, and there's no plotting to kill him. There's no there's there's no possibility of him dying again. He's risen never to die again. He's ascended. He has been raised to the right hand of the Father, the text says. He is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's at the right hand of God, and I, I think that that is an allusion to Psalm 110, 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And what is he doing at the right hand of the Father, apart from propping up his feet on the backs of his enemies? He intercedes for us. Paul says, reminding us of the truth of Isaiah 53 where we are told that the despised and rejected Messiah has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, carried the iniquity of us all, and was stricken for the transgression of his people. But as his soul made an anguished offering for sin, he saw and was satisfied that he had made many to be counted righteous. So satisfied was he by the outcome of his suffering, he poured out his soul to death and was gladly numbered with the transgressors of the law. He bore the sin of many and he makes intercession, representation, intense prayer representing on behalf of transgressors, the very ones with whom he died, the very ones by whom he died the very ones for whom he died, pleading their case, having already paid the penalty for them. But still there is suffering. Still there is sorrow, even among those for whom Jesus died. And so the apostle Paul quotes Psalm 44, 22. Reminding us that whereas once we may have suffered for crimes, now we suffer for Christ. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The wider context of that psalm, though, is a prayer for God to rise up. And to come to the help and redemption of his people, it's rooted in the belief, the hope, the faith that God is greater than all the people and all the problems and all the principalities and all the powers that oppose us. At the heart of that psalm is not this mournful cry of, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long, but rather is the exultative exclamation, you are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob, though we, through, through, through you, through, through you, our king, through you, our God, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. 
For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we've boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Interlayered through his word is the story of God's work. So we not only answer with God's word, but we answer with God's work. If God is for us, he asks, who can be against us? The creator of the universe, the sustainer of everything. God above all is on our side. I mean, it seems almost irreverent for God to take someone's side. We might generally say God doesn't take sides. God is a side. But here he takes his people's side. And this is encouraging if you are his people. If you're not, you need to examine yourself and see, do you believe the things that I've been saying? Are you trusting in the Christ? Christ about whom I, I, I've been speaking? If not, I don't think you can say anything with the confidence that, that Paul has. But God says, I'm on my people's side in this. God on our side is greater than anything and everything that comes against us. I'll say it again. God on our side is greater than anything and everything that comes against us. Not only that, God's gift in our Savior is greater than anything taken from us. God's gift in our Savior is greater than anything taken from us. And so because we have God's Greatness, And because we have God's gift, someone brings a charge against us. God justifies. God makes you right. Someone raises condemnation against us or something brings condemnation before us or the fears or the thoughts of condemnation to us. Christ was also condemned and he died for us. Christ is the one who died and he's also been raised. We answer with God's work. God is greater. God's gift is, is more. And in these things, we are satisfied. Come what may. Not only do we answer with God's word, which I really spent a, a fair amount of time on because I want you to know the power of God's word in response to your suffering. We answer with God's work. And God's word testifies about God's work as we have seen. But finally, we also answer with God's wisdom. If God's word says X, and if God's work has done Y, then that must mean Z. That would be the equation, right? So if, if 
God's word says what we've read that it says. And if God's work has done what it says, what we have said it has done, that, that Christ has died for us, he has raised for us, he is interceding for us, the Spirit is praying for us, he is helping us, then what does that mean? I mean, sometimes we, we don't respond to things with God's wisdom. Sometimes we, we look at X and we look at Y and we come up with C and not Z. And, and it's like, what, 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 what's going on here? We're like, ah, is God really with me? I don't feel his presence right now. Or I feel he's so far away, or I feel like I'm so far away, or I don't see his hand in all of this. Brothers and sisters, he is with you to the ends of the earth. He has said that, that's not changed. He is with you to the ends of the earth, a spatial statement. Wherever you are, there is no place where he is not. Furthermore, he is also with you to the end of the age. He has said that as well. That is not a spatial statement. That's a time statement. He is, he is with you whenever. There is no age where God is more or less present or active. We need to stop thinking about golden ages of God's activity and sovereign intervention in human history. God is every bit as much present and active today as he was in whatever times you're looking back at nostalgically. We read in verse 37, in all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In what things? In, in all these things, verse 35, go back. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, verse 37 answers, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Shall, verse 35, distress, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Or, or persecution. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In famine, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Or nakedness, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Or danger, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Or sword, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Shall we be killed all day long? No. Shall we be marginalized and dehumanized and brutalized and no one cares like sheep led to the slaughter? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us in all these things, not away from all these things, not removed from all these things, not apart from all these things, not despite all these things, but in all these things. In what things? In your suffering, in your distress, 
in your sorrow, in your grief, in your groaning. God is working out a plan. God is preparing you for glory. In the groaning of creation and in the groanings of new creation, in your weakness, even your weakness to talk to your incredibly loving, adoptive Heavenly Father, in all these things, everything, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he says, as though he's not already said enough, verse 38, for I am sure. No, I'm thinking. Not. I'm wondering. Not. I suppose that might be the case. I am sure. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As the songwriters sang, in every condition, in sickness, in health, in poverty's veil, or abounding in wealth, at home or abroad, on the land, on the sea, as days shall demand, shall thy strength ever be. And I'm reminded of the psalm, when I ascend to heaven, you are there. When I go into the abyss, you are there. And when I sit in darkness, you are a light to me. God is with you. God is with us. And, and, and I don't want to hear any more people who have been bought by the blood of Christ and have been promised eternity living in perpetual doubt and despair and depression and disheartenment. You're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. Do not be overwhelmed. Do not be overcome. Do not be swept away by your suffering. Not even by coronavirus, not even by the fear of coronavirus. Why? Because God on our side is greater than anything and everything that comes against us. And God's gift in our Savior is greater than anything taken from us. May the Lord be with you and help you and bless you and hold you and keep you. Amen.